Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. We're back on Political Rewind after a long holiday weekend. We took Memorial Day off, as I hope many of you did. Um, And I hope you all found it to be a restful, but more important, uh, healthy uh, weekend as you uh, celebrated in whatever constrained way you probably had to do it, uh, Memorial Day, and paid honor to the men and women of our armed forces uh, who fought for this country as well uh, this year. Uh, uh, paying uh, your respects to the dead from uh, COVID-19. It it was a somber weekend in some ways as uh, people absorbed uh, the deaths that we've seen in the country from COVID-19 at this point. Uh, Let's get right to our panel. We've got a great one for you today. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my Tuesday partner on the show. She is with us. So, Tamar, as I introduce everybody, I would really love for each of you to give just a very quick report on what you found out there, assuming you ventured outside. We're all paying attention to behaviors in the community. Did you go outside at all? Did you see people wearing masks? Were they honoring social distancing? Just give us a quick uh, uh, report on your weekend. (laughs) I live right next to Piedmont Park, so going out there, you know, you, you encounter some people wearing masks, trying to distance themselves, but then plenty of other groups of 20 plus people hanging out, you know, within a foot of each other, like nothing's happening. And, and there were plenty of people like that, too. So um, pick your own adventure, I guess. Yeah. Tia Mitchell, your colleague, uh, who is the Washington correspondent for the AJC, joins us. Tia, thanks for being here. What about you? Were you out at all in Washington, and what did you find? Good morning. Um, as you know, here in the D.C. area, we're still under the same shelter-in-place order we've been since the start of this thing. So masks are required if you go inside one of the few grocery stores or um, to get some takeout, you have to wear a mask when you enter a building. And I did do a socially distanced meetup yesterday for Memorial Day, but we all, the park was pretty empty, and me and my friends stayed more than six feet away from each other. So it's very <laughs> different than what we're seeing down there in Georgia. I got gotcha. you. Uh, Lori Geary is with us. Lori, the former political reporter for WSB-TV Channel 2 in Atlanta, uh, now has her own uh, company doing uh, communications consulting uh, work and is the host of Georgia Gang, which you can watch on Sunday mornings at 8.30 on uh, WAGA Fox 5 here in Atlanta. Lori, you've you've got kids to deal with. Were you able to get them out over the weekend, what did you find when you were out there? Um, we went to Lake Sinclair to kind of get away and get out in the open air and the fresh air. And I'll tell you, there weren't a lot of masks that we saw there. But, you know, we've been going over to Chaskin Park, which is where we live. I noticed that people who are outside and are out in the parks, very few are wearing masks. But when we go into the grocery stores or the Targets or Walmarts, we notice people are keeping a safe distance and wearing their masks. 
So you felt pretty safe. We do. We feel very safe. Dr. Kerwin Swint, who is the director of the School of Government and International Affairs and a professor of political science at uh, Kennesaw State University, also with us. Kerwin, I, let me start. I want to hear what your experience was like, but I've got to say, I've been sheltering in place. My wife and I did do, a, we went out just a little bit. We went to a garden store because we wanted to get a couple of new bird feeders. We wanted to add, we want even more birds in our yard. <laughs> got a couple of hummingbird feeders. And I got to say, Kerwin, there were too many people without masks in my neighborhood. And I found myself maybe a little irrationally getting angry with them. And, and at one point, I actually wanted to shout out at somebody, which it, it's, it's, it's troubling to me because uh, I want people to protect my health in the same way I want to protect yours. What's it like up your way? Well, I live in Marietta, and I've been out a fair amount, and really the whole time, even when we were under very strict shelter-in-place orders, you really couldn't tell it because the traffic looked fairly normal. There were people out and about, um, and so, you know, I don't think a lot of people really took it as a very serious thing, but about the masks, you know, you've heard about a, a partisan difference where Democrats, it seems like Democrats are more likely to wear masks than Republicans, but one thing I've noticed is a gender difference, uh, and that is that women are much more likely to wear masks than men are, in my experience, from, from what I've seen. It, interesting. All right, so masks were part of the political dialogue this weekend, uh, Tamar. Uh, we saw it yesterday when President Trump went to a Memorial Day observance, and uh, Joe Biden, for the first time in a long, long time, actually left his home and uh, laid a wreath in honor of veterans as well. Of course, President Trump would, did not wear a mask. Joe Biden was wearing a black mask that seemed to cover his, his, the lower part of his face quite well. He, uh, Britt Hume, the Fox News uh, anchor, former ABC guy, pretty respectable in his career at ABC, actually tweeted out a picture of, of uh, Biden and made fun of him, said, no wonder the president doesn't want to wear a mask. So we really saw, just in that case, Tamar, uh, a divide between the president and his Democratic opponent. Yeah, for sure. And I uh, I know we're going to talk about this later, but I was with, with Mike Pence on Friday when he came to Dobbins and um, came in and met with the governor. And it was interesting to see, um, you know, I tweeted out, the status of folks, whether they were wearing masks or not. And that seemed to be, at least on, on social media, what folks were really, <laughs> what, what folks were really commenting on. And, and you know, I, I got a ton of hate mail for not including in my story whether they were or were not wearing masks. It seems to be kind of the symbol of, of this fraught political moment and, and kind of the divisions between us, I would say. Well, you know what, um, Lori, I don't know if it was the New York Times or the Washington Post. Tomorrow, were you, I don't know that you were you on the tarmac when Pence landed? Yes. Tomorrow? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the, the Washington Post or the New York Times, Lori, reported that Doug Collins, who was waiting for the vice president, and we will talk a little bit more about what an interesting story that was, he and the other greeters were all wearing masks. And as soon as the door of Air Force Two opened, they took their masks off because Pence, Kelly Leffler, none of them were wearing masks. And, and Laura, you, you couldn't ask for a more uh, a striking example of 
uh, this notion that people don't want to wear masks around uh, the White House folks because they don't want to seem disloyal. Um, I know. And I, I hate the fact that this has become a political issue. And now we see polling. And I can't imagine the polling questions. Are you a Republican or Democrat? Yes or no. Pick one or the other. And then do you wear a mask? Yes or no. I mean, if you want a reason to divide this country even more, and you're going to you know, ask them political party, party and then whether or not they're wearing masks, it shouldn't be that way. And I think this all stems from way in the beginning when we've been getting so many mixed messages on whether these masks are effective. And I think that stems from, you know, early February or March when the CDC came out and said they don't work. And then Dr. Bricks even this weekend came out and said they do work. So I think there's all of this mixed messaging. People really don't don't know who to believe. And then I think it was a political statement whenever they stepped, you know, when they were on the tarmac and took them off, maybe because, you know, here they come, they're outside. Right. We don't see a lot of people, like I mentioned earlier, wearing masks outside. So it's just I think it's frustrating for a lot of people. On, you know, who do you believe in the medical field? I wear a mask when I go out and I wear a mask when I go in a store, not necessarily when I'm outside in the open air. Uh, Tia? I, I think it's more about politics because there aren't many doctors who are saying masks aren't helpful. Like, you might have various, we've heard different things about how helpful they are, but there's no medical experts really saying, no, you should not wear masks. They're totally useless. You know what I mean? And so, to me, it's more of what we've been saying about this, you know, political dog whistle more than anything, where you have Republicans trying to, you know, symbolize to a certain constituency um, and maybe there are Democrats speaking to a different constituency, constituency by wearing the mask. But it seems to be way more about politics than it is about health and, and, and what's, what's the advice from our medical experts. I think there's... I think there's also some social pressure involved in it, too. Um, you know, I can confirm what, what the, the Post was saying about being uh, on the tarmac in, at, at Dobbins. And, and the governor, his wife, the three Republican congressmen who were there were all waiting with masks. And they even came to talk to the press wearing masks. And then you're right, the second that, um, that the vice president and Senator Leffler deplaned without masks, they all took them off. But then you saw kind of later in the day, they, they go to a restaurant, no one's wearing masks, but they take them off. But then we went to a, a roundtable with restaurant CEOs and, and everyone in the crowd was wearing masks. You saw Doug Collins, Kelly Leffler put their masks back on. So I think there, there is some kind of social pressures as well. And, and we've seen out of the White House, the, the president and the vice president and a lot of their, um, their public appearances saying they don't want to wear masks. And so I think that that certainly sets a tone, especially uh, with members of Congress who are trying to show their support for the administration. I think it was when I can imagine people go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think it was in March when the Surgeon General said that masks can actually be counterproductive. And so I definitely think there have been some mixed messages coming from different scientific sources. But I also think that uh, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people out there have decided that you know, this is not as serious as they at first feared and that if they see the uh, rates of infection going down, that it's somehow safe to, to not wear masks now and get out there among the public. So I think there are a lot of things contributing to this. And I think partisanship is part of it, but I also think the, uh, the messaging is, is part of it too. 
I think that's important that you point that out, Kerwin, and it is certainly true that both the Surgeon General and CDC early on uh, discouraged mask wearing. CDC said uh, they didn't want masks to uh, go out to the general public when they were needed for uh, 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 doctors and frontline healthcare workers. But uh, CDC changed their rules. CDC ended up putting out a strong statement saying they've uh, come to the conclusion that masks really can protect people, especially if they're worn by those who may be positive, preventing them from spreading the virus. But, Laurie, here's what I find fascinating about this. It would be easy to come in in the middle of this conversation and say, this is ridiculous. Why are these people, why is this host of this show spending so much time asking these really smart panelists about whether people are wearing masks or not? Aren't there more important issues to talk about out there? But, but I would maintain that the reason it's worth spending a few minutes on is that it does have to do with the public health of our communities, how seriously we take the virus, um, whether we believe as, as Karuin points out, people are starting to relax and feel the virus isn't really as big an issue as it's been made out before. I, I don't think it's a trivial thing because it relates to public health. I agree. And I think this also relates to leadership. And so I was glad to see Governor Kemp when I saw him with a mask because, you know, when you're talking about leadership during a pandemic, should, you know, President Trump said when he was in Michigan, I know we're going to get this, you know, I'm not going to do this in front of the reporters to give them their satisfaction or something to that effect. Well, when you're the leader, you know, everybody's looking to you as to what they're supposed to be doing. And so that just doesn't send the right message. And now we know, like, we know that the facts of this of COVID-19 are constantly changing, right? I mean, last week, now the CDC said we're not we don't think it survives on surfaces the way we thought in the beginning. And so as we learn more and more, we need to be turning more to the health leaders um, and having them in the news conferences rather than just hearing from our politically elected leaders and so that we know who we should be following. Um, I would like to hear much more from Kathleen Toomey, Dr. Toomey, you know, on, on the health of, of Georgia and where we are and Dr. Bricks and Dr. Fauci rather than the president. Because I think you, that's one way you can start taking the politics out of it when you're communicating. Tia, North Carolina has a Republican governor, Doug Bargum. He, over the weekend, uh, made a statement about masks that went viral uh, because he, partly because he is a Republican and partly because he made a very emotional pitch for why people ought to be wearing masks. Let's listen. This is a, uh, I would say, senseless uh, dividing line, uh, and it. And I would ask people to uh, try to dial up your empathy and your understanding. If someone is wearing a mask, uh, they're not doing it to represent what political party they're in or what candidates they support. They might be doing it because they've got a five-year-old child who's who's been going through cancer treatments. They, they might have vulnerable adults in their life uh, who, are, who are currently up COVID and are fighting. Doug Bargum, governor of North Dakota, urging people in a very emotional way. He got quite tearful as he talked about it uh, to wear masks, saying, yes, masks are important. All right. So let's leave that uh, for the 
time being and move on to another aspect. And I can't wait to get all of you engaged in this conversation of the visit by the vice president to uh, Georgia last Friday. Uh, Tamar, um, it is my understanding that Kelly Leffler was asked by uh, Mark Meadows, the new chief of staff in the White House, to join the vice president on Air Force Two uh, for the flight to Atlanta. When, But the vice president's office decided that if that was going to be the case, then they wanted to make sure Doug Collins, her opponent in, the, uh, in Senate race number two, would be invited to the tarmac to greet the vice president when he landed. And I know that Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins actually exchanged greetings. That must have been awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was so glued to, to all of it because you could see it. Doug Collins was, was the first person on the runway after uh, after Brian Kemp and his wife, Marty, to, to greet the party. And, and we were all just there kind of salivating, wanting to take in this exchange. And after after the congressman, there, there were a couple of his uh, Congress or sorry, a, a couple of his colleagues from Capitol Hill also on the runway behind him. So as as Pence, who came out first, was greeting everybody, I knew there would be this awkward moment where where Senator Leffler would have to stand there and talk to Doug Collins. And it ended up being for almost an entire minute where they, they kind of had to sit there and make small talk. They knew that all the press was there. We're all recording, <laughs> taking videos, taking it all in. And, and, you know, the exchange seemed, you know, amicable. They, they shook hands, they were smiling, they, they talked for about a minute. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it just showed how awkward this whole song and dance was the, the fact that the, the vice president's staff was taking such pains to make sure that that uh, Congressman Collins on the back end got equal time with the vice president. He also caught a ride with him back to Dobbins at the end of the day after a restaurant roundtable. And, um, you know, the awkward politics of it all when you have a, a, you know, an election in November that pits two Republicans against each other. And, and the White House, at least publicly, is, is trying not to get involved in that. And that's what's fascinating, Kerwin. Uh, at, look, Kelly Leffler was the anointed choice by Brian Kemp to fill the Johnny Isaacson Senate seat. She immediately won the support of the NRSC. She won the support of Mitch McConnell and his enormous pack. I mean, she is the designated, you know, she's the mainstream Republican who presumably everybody was going to get behind and yet, and yet, uh, it is clear just by that action, you know, Doug Collins being given sort of semi-equal treatment with the vice president's visit, uh, that the White House is unsettled about this. And Kerwin, this weekend, uh, uh, Maggie Haberman and two of her colleagues who cover the White House for the New York Times wrote a piece on this, and this is the lead. President Trump's advisors are increasingly concerned about Senator Kelly Loeffler's campaign in Georgia, a newly competitive state where the president's own poll numbers have tightened against former Vice President Joseph Biden, according to people briefed on the discussions. And it goes on to say that um, the uh, that Doug Collins is grow- is gaining strength in the field. He was the president's first choice for that job. And so the White House intends to stay out of the race. That's quite a blow to the Leffler campaign, isn't it, Kerwin? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it, in a way, this is going to be a test case for just how strong incumbency is in a U.S. Senate race. And the White House is understandably divided in all of this. I mean, they did want Doug Collins at first. 
Frank Hemp went in a different direction. And at first, a lot of uh, people, as you say, the NRCC, uh, you know, got behind the Kelly Luffer campaign, Mitch McConnell, because she's an incumbent. But the fact is, Doug Collins is uh, very strong among Georgia Republicans. I mean, I don't think there's much question if the election were held today, Collins would very likely win. Um, and, and there is an erosion of support for Leffler, especially since the stock thing blew up a few weeks ago. Um, and so the White House is sort of doing their best to, to, to stay in the middle. And it'll be interesting to see if they decide to get in the race in any substantive way. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the White House staying in the middle benefits Doug Collins more because Senator Leffler, you know, at this point really needs the Trump stamp of approval, and I'm sure she wants it to a greater degree than what she's received so far, which is, you know, Kelly Leffler's a nice person. That's the most she's really got from the president thus far. So she really wants his endorsement. She wants, you know, to to have that coalescing around her, and she's not getting that. Whereas for Doug Collins, Trump just remaining neutral at this point is excellent for Doug Collins. Of course, a Trump endorsement would be like icing on the cake, and he would enjoy it too. But just that neutrality is, like, good for Doug Collins, whereas for Kelly Leffler, she really needs more. And I think that is very telling in kind of where they both are politically right now. I agree with Kia. I think it would really help Kelly Leffler if the Trump if or President Trump came out in favor of her, obviously, it would be a huge boost to her campaign. But we don't see that that's going to happen. And right now I'm hearing that that's not going to happen, that the president at this point is staying out of it. I just think, um, Bill, to that New York Times article, I mean, many people, because of the time that we're in and the economic times that we're in, that Kelly Leffler is very damaged at this point because, you know, this is all about stock trades. And I don't know that her ads at this point are really helping her when she's talking about her private plane, even though she's helping people. Um, and she's talking about giving a million dollars to Phoebe Putney. I don't think that that's helping her message. Um, you know, we see a lot of very wealthy people who help people that don't advertise it, and especially in politics. You've got to think about why Governor Kemp appointed Kelly Leffler, the, the strengths that she brings to the table. Um, you know, and initially, the, you know, the governor picked her because he thought she could appeal to these suburban Republican women who, in general, have been really disenchanted with Donald Trump, who've been jumping, you know, to the Democratic Party these last few elections. Well, if Doug Collins is still around and he's on Fox News trying to outplank Kelly Leffler on the right, she's going to have to spend so much time and energy trying to, to stick right with him energy that she should be spending, in theory, trying to win these Republican women in the suburbs who are, who are jumping the party. So that's why she needs Trump's seal of approval so much, as Tia was saying. That can help shore her up on the right so she can spend more time and attention on the center. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting that almost from day one, even before Collins got in, and maybe because she knew the rumor mill of him possibly getting in was already, you know, from day one, he was kind of on her back, she went to the right immediately. So it's like the whole hope, and we've talked about this before, the whole hope that she would be someone to appeal to the suburban moms, but I don't know if anti-abortion messages really resonate with suburban moms. I don't know if, you know, being all in for Trump and, and um, 
in some of the things that Kelly Leffler has said from the beginning as she's tried to curry favor with the president really would help to do what Governor Kemp wants her to do in suburban Atlanta. Yeah, I, I agree that Kelly Loeffler having to shore up the right wing is the exact opposite of what Brian Kemp had in mind. And I think all this goes back to the two different ways that Trump and Governor Kemp see elections. I mean, Trump sees this as a base election, and Doug Collins would have been very, very strong in, in rallying the Georgia base, the Trump base, and winning this year. But Brian Kemp looks at 2022 right around the corner. And he wants to build up that Republican uh, turnout in the metro Atlanta suburbs. And that's where Kelly Leffler was supposed to come in. But so far, it's not working out. Yeah, uh, Laurie, I think that's really interesting, actually, Um, uh, because the dynamics of the race are are changing in Georgia. If, in fact, and there there are people who think that Georgia could be in play, you know, you can run a base election if you're convinced, uh, and Leffler could be a part of that, if you're convinced that the base is strong enough to carry the day, that the base will elect Donald Trump, re-elect Donald Trump, that the base would elect a Kelly Leffler who's in Donald Trump's corner, a David Perdue who's one of Trump's strongest advocates. But when we start seeing shifting in the it, more than ever before in the dynamic of the electorate here, see polls that say that maybe Biden and Trump are neck and neck here, it just changed the calculation a bit uh, to put Kelly Leffler in this odd position of playing to a, a Trump base, but also, you know, now kind of negating her potential with uh, the suburban votes that they apparently now need. Well, that's exactly why I think they should have let her handlers, Kelly Leffler's handlers, just be her. I think that, you know, she was pushed to be one way when she may not be as far right as everybody, you know, made her out to be. And I think that's that they did a true disservice to her because I think even I keep going back to her ads, but I think even in our ads, she just didn't seem genuine when she was talking about her point of view. But when you would see her just out on the campaign trail or you would see her doing her own social media ads, she was much more relaxed and much more herself. So I think when we saw Karen Handel come out and um, endorse Doug Collins, I think that said a lot because those are the female Republicans that, you know, Governor Kemp and Kelly Leffler are trying to target. So uh, we got to get to a break. But before we do, Tamar, the, uh, uh, the Leffler campaign has now put out a series of new TV spots. And uh, the theme of a couple of them is uh, that we in the media are basically uh, frauds, phonies, fakes, and the language that they use, none of those are the words that are in the ads. I just don't happen to have the copy from the ads in front of me. But they're a pretty brutal attack on the media as undermining her uh, uh, out of nefarious reasons, Tamar. Yeah, exactly. And that's something you hear whenever she, she, you know, whenever she's asked about her stock trades, which, as we've discussed, has been quite damaging to her so far. And, and she's, she's talked about it as, you know, we're, we in the media are the ones who keep bringing it up and, and won't drop it. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I won't comment on that part. <laughs> oh, you know what? Tom, Tom Faust just told me that we have one of those ads. We, we played it late last week. Let's listen to it again before we take our break. Well, in my opinion, the media is just trash. It's just made up propaganda to fit their narrative. And that's just how they do. And unfortunately, Kelly's been a victim to that. 
Kelly was a target from the get-go because she stood behind the president, especially against Planned Parenthood. It's very important as a mother of two daughters, and I appreciate the fact that she's doing that for her life. She is just 100% there for the people here. I'm Kelly Leffler, and I approve this message. So, Kerwin, the ads are based on uh, getting so-called real people to comment on how they're feeling as they watch the campaigning unfold. Uh, Kerwin and then Tia, and then we got to get to a break. Kerwin, what do you think? That's actually a pretty smart ad uh, because he is taking the President Trump strategy and attacking the national media, uh, which is uh, popular with the Republican base. I mean, so I don't know if that's a changing tactic or a realization that that's what they need to do to try to get her some traction. Well, I just, I'm the media who's written a lot about Kelly Leffler's um, stock trading, and I've had a lot of conversations both on the record and off the record with Senator Leffler's team, not yet with Senator Leffler, um, not for lack of asking. And so it is, you know, I tell them privately, and I will say this publicly, my job is to report facts, and I do not have a dog in the fight. I don't, you know, and I tell them, if you think I've done something false or misleading, call me, and um, we can have that conversation. But I think it's just like, it's again, it's a dog whistle. It's playing to the base, but it's not rooted in reality. And is that dog whistle Lord? going to help? Is that dog whistle going to help her in a November jungle election when you've got Doug Collins in the race? The other point I want to make here is, remember, this is all about transparency. When you are asked a simple question as a sitting senator and as a candidate, are you being investigated by the federal, by the feds, and you don't even answer that, and we know that you've turned over papers, I mean, this is all about transparency, and it just gives off this whole, you know, aura that you're not being transparent, and if your handlers aren't comfortable with putting you out in front of the media, at all and only talking to certain reporters, that doesn't make me believe that your handlers have faith in how you handle questions from the media. Okay, final word, because Tom Faust, he's saying you got to get to a break, but we're going to do one more question tomorrow. Um, all of this, all of this seems to me to shift the focus away. If in fact Georgia is in play, and let's just start with that as a hypothetical assumption. If in fact Georgia's in play, if in fact Georgia could be thinking about electing a uh, uh, a more moderate uh, Republican or actually vote for a Democrat, I don't know who the moderate Republican is, by the way. But but more, my point really is. Uh, it all takes attention away from Doug Collins, one of the fiercest, most aggressive, and some would say vicious defenders of President Trump during the uh, during the impeachment hearings. Uh, and you know, for those suburban voters who, you know, uh, maybe swing voters, they may forget that Doug Collins was so far to the right in uh, in those hearings. Yeah, he's able to stay on offense this entire time um, and, and take kind of all the shots he wants at, at Leffler. And in, in the meantime, nobody's actually talking about any sort of policy proposals or, or anything they would do differently or, or any sort of message other than I'm the most faithful to Trump. Um, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, at this point, I, it feels like we haven't had any sort of substantive policy debate about what they'd be doing uh, if, if they were elected senators. So that says a lot about where we are yeah. at this moment. 
All right, let's do this. We got to get to a break. When we come back, let's talk about the uh, primary election and uh, how the voting is going so far and a plea from the Secretary of State to get your absentee votes in. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Quint, Laurie Gutery, Tom, uh, uh, Tia Mitchell, and Tamar Hellerman with me for Political Rewind today. Uh, uh, um, just a very quick note. Uh, I mentioned in the headlines to the show, and I, di- I didn't get a chance to flesh it out the way I probably should have, but uh, Tia, the president uh, yesterday said that he is uh, really angry with Roy Cooper, the Democratic governor of North Carolina, because Cooper is keeping the state pretty much closed down. The Republican convention is supposed to be there in August. And uh, the president's saying, if they don't want to open the state up, I'll move the convention. And one of the states that's been talked about as a new location is Georgia, although there's nothing formal yet. But, uh, but Tia, the governor's office, said they'd be open to the conversation. Right. So so are the um, Florida GOP. The thing is, it's not up to the president. It's up to the RNC. And as we know, the president might not be as well versed on the details of what it takes to host a political convention or move a political convention. I was in Florida in 2012 when the RNC was there, and it is not something you do in a matter of months. And so I think, um, I'm, you know, the convention's may well be scaled back. And and I know that the president wants, you know, his big night, his big speech on stage. I don't know even if the convention stayed in North Carolina, he will get that. Because are you going to get, you know, tens of thousands of people willing to pack out an auditorium, even if you focus on your base? Um, That still is going to be a hard thing to do in 2020. But right now it just seems like a lot of talk. I agree with Tia. I cannot imagine. I mean, we're talking the, the convention right now is scheduled for August 24th to August 27th, even if it's pushed back. I can't imagine them filling a stadium full of people. I mean, if we're talking about sports, not having spectators, this is the Super Bowl politics, right? If you want to talk in sports terms, there's no way that they're going to have tens of thousands of people packed into one place and think that that is the responsible thing to do. So I would be really surprised if the convention goes off the way it has been all these years and there isn't some type of virtual element or television element only involved. Well, you know, this is an interesting year for conventions. We've never had to have some of these conversations before, but I think the North Carolina governor is going to do whatever he can to get that convention in North Carolina. There's too much economically at stake here. And and preparations have gone along too far. I do think there are a lot of Republicans who would be, you know, bursting at the gate to try to get in that arena, uh, mask or no mask. And that'll be a big question. <laughs> will you see a lot of Republicans in there wearing masks or not? Or will they do a mask check at the gate? No, you can't bring your mask in. 
Um, but I, I do think it'll be in North Carolina. I'd be surprised if they move it at this late date. Yeah, Tamara, it does feel as if the president is uh, issuing a threat. One of those off-the-cuff remarks that the president sometimes makes without necessarily any substance behind it. Yeah, and I mean, who knows how this how this shakes out? I think um, all the panelists are right that that even if this does happen in in you know in person, it's not going to be the same kind of convention that we've grown accustomed to over the last couple of years. Um, and just to think about who's going to a lot of these conventions, a lot of these are elderly people who are more vulnerable to to getting sick, and you don't want to be the person who convened all of you know a big event like this and, and have all these people who do get sick because of you. So um, I'm curious to see what happens and, and how they how they get around to, to doing it, if there's it, how much political theater they're able to do, how much of a show you can do if it's all virtual or, or partially virtual anyway. Um, what's interesting, of course, is that, by the way, Tom Faust, I'm getting mixed minus in my ear. Somebody pushed a button that's really creating, I'm hearing myself back, if you can fix that. Um, it's interesting that the uh, uh, Democrats are in later in July whereas the Republicans aren't until the end of August. So potentially by the end of August, things may have changed, but it's Democrats who really may have a significant problem. It'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. So, Tia, while we're talking about President Trump and his tweeting this weekend, he retweeted a couple of times a a far-right troll— who uh, has a reputation for really trashing people on social media. And among the tweets he retweeted was some pretty nasty language about Stacey Abrams, talking about her voracious appetite, essentially. She never passes up a buffet. It, 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 Tia, I bring it up simply because Stacey Abrams, she's— She's a Georgia politician, and it, it seemed to be so out of nowhere and so senseless. Well, um, let's just say that, again, there are people in far-right politics who are very bothered by Stacey Abrams, not just because she's a Democratic figure, but because she is black, she is a woman, she is unapologetic, she is confident in her size. She's a plus-size woman, and she doesn't shy away from that. And she um, gets on the cover of magazines being her full, unapologetic self, as people like to say. And so she is, especially for that far-right element of the Republican Party, which does not represent the whole party, but it is a part of the party that even Republicans have not figured out how to deal with. Well, we know that President Trump has somewhat encouraged that aspect of the party, and that's something that Republicans are going to have to deal with far after Donald Trump is no longer president. And um, I think, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, Lori, that same series of retweets also took a really nasty shot at uh, Speaker Pelosi and it was an and it was another example of what critics of Trump say is his the ease with which he attacks women. This is where I hear a lot from Republicans who say, you know, 
this is, I may like his policies, but I can't stand his tweeting. And we've seen this dating back to just his first days on the campaign trail. And, you know, he would go after Carly Fiorina. Um, he was, I mean, he does it too. I mean, Marco Rubio with his hands. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. It's such the ugly side of politics. And I just wish this is where, you know, he, I don't know why he thinks that this fires up anybody or fires up his base. Because I don't think, I think it backfires and especially with women. Um, so I'm not sure where this, you know, where the strategy comes from. I think he's just kind of doing it off the cuff, like you said. Kerwin, um, we know that we've we've learned that uh, most Republican elected officials don't want to push back when the president does these things publicly. But you've got to figure if, if you are a, a Republican leader, a Republican elected official, you got to be tearing your hair out when you see this sort of stuff. Oh, oh, you do. I mean, there are a lot of Republican elected officials, appointed officials, staff behind the scenes uh, who just uh, shake their head, you know, sort of brace themselves for what's going to come next. You know, and Twitter, uh, we all know, can be a really nasty place anyway. And I think President Trump, uh, I think Lori was saying, you know, that a lot of people view him personally in, in negative ways. I think a lot of times he just can't help himself uh, to retweet these things that make him feel good, but aren't necessarily very smart. So, uh, Kerwin, you're you're a political scientist. You've studied Georgia politics, certainly. If if you had to take, and we're going to give you this uh, chance right before a break. If you looked at the president's uh, dealing with the coronavirus, if you deal with his uh, broader behavior in terms of the way he comports himself on social media, uh, sometimes in his. Uh, spontaneous remarks to the press when he's giving a news conference. Um, where do you think he stands right now with Georgia voters on those fronts and how it may impact his reelection chances here? Well, I think Georgia is like a lot of states where the Republican base likes him. They don't mind his personal weaknesses like that. Um, it, it's, it's something that is a little bit like back in the days of Bill Clinton, where a lot of his personal behaviors is sort of factored in, is baked into the cake, and either you like him or you don't. And so I think in the final analysis, the election comes down to the normal things, and that is the economy, and that is the mood of the country, and particularly this year, how people think the coronavirus is going. Yeah. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and when we come back, let's talk about how the vote is going in Georgia. Welcome back to Political Rewind, our first show back after the Memorial Day holiday. Uh, it occurred to me this morning that uh, we are starting today our 11th week, 11th week of doing the show, our shelter-in-place edition of Political Rewind. I continue to do the show out of a spare bedroom in our house, and all of our panelists like our wonderful group today, Tamar Hallerman, Tia Mitchell, Lori Geary, and Kerwin Swint, right now. We have 1,586,974 Georgians who've applied to vote by mail. That's 1,733% higher than the 2016 primary. Um, we, 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 the numbers of people 
who have applied for Democratic ballots and Republican ballots have pretty well equalized. There have been 754,000 requests for Democratic ballots, 771,000 for Republican uh, ballots. And um, but but the returns so far, we have seen the returns by Republican candidates far outweigh the number of Democrat ba- uh, ballots that have been filled out and uh, uh, sent in. We don't have any way of really reaching a conclusion about whether we're going to end up seeing as many Democrats as Republicans uh, during the early voting period, the absentee or, or the absentee ballot uh, period. Uh, but we'll have to watch how that unfolds. Yeah. See, I what do you a- think when you hear me talk about absentee voting? I agree. I think, you know, and I think one of the reasons why the secretary of state is practically begging people in the nicest way to get their ballots in now is so that they can go ahead and get those ballots prepped, open them up, try to verify them, everything they can do before the cutoff time where they can start counting the ballots. Because remember, there's a whole process that must be done to the ballots before they can even be counted. And I think that's what the Secretary of State is saying, give it to us now so we can get that legwork done in advance. And I hope that's what's resonating with folks. Yeah, and uh, I think that it's going to be very difficult to get all of those counted. But, you know, you have to give the Secretary of State's office some credit here. They've been proactive, uh, one of the leading states, really, and, and trying to prepare the state for this huge, unprecedented number of absentee ballots. Um, and let's hope that they can get them counted in time. I agree with Kerwin. I, I think the fact that Brad Raffensperger has been on this from the beginning as the Secretary of State's office And he's really been going against President Donald Trump, who's saying, you know, this is all these absentee ballots are going to amount to fraud. There's that mixed messaging again. But I think um, Brad Raffensperger is on the right track. And I wonder how many of these absentee ballots will be turned in before Election Day. Yeah, uh, I I guess also part of the problem that the Secretary of State's office is concerned about tomorrow, and they saw it on the uh, first days of early voting, is there were people who had applied for absentee ballots and then decided they'd rather show up at the polling place and vote in person, which leads to a process that the uh, poll workers have to go through to cancel out that absentee uh, ballot application and and, uh, clear the way for the person to vote in person. And that led to real delays. I mean, all of this suggests, and I agree with everybody who said that the Secretary of State's office has really worked hard on this and done a pretty good job, but nevertheless, it's the kind of election that we may not know for days who some of the winners are in some of these races tomorrow. Yeah, and, and there's fewer polling places that are open in person. There's fewer people who, who are reporting to, to go work in them. Often poll workers are elderly people who are particularly vulnerable to the, the coronavirus, and it just leads to even more challenges going into Election Day. They're trying to socially distance and, and space out, to, leading to more delays. We are completely out of time for today's show. Tia Mitchell, Tamar Hallerman, Kerwin Swint, Lori Geary, thank you for being with me. I'm very sorry we had a little problem there when I couldn't hear you for a while during the show because I really like what you all have to say. Speaking of Brad Raffensperger, he's going to be on our show tomorrow. Uh, We have a lot of questions that our listeners want to ask him about voting in the pandemic, and we'll get to them on Political Rewind tomorrow. Meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. See you tomorrow.